In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. We're back. <laughs> I feel like I'm uh, recording with like a your phone phone sex operator voice or something. <laughs> I lost my voice yesterday a little bit. I knew this was going to happen too. We mm-hmm. uh, we went. Davy and I went to a battle of the bands thing last night. I don't night. think I've ever been to a battle of the bands thing. It was fun. It was really I fun. Bet. Yeah, I mean, obviously my voice is gone. Um. My sister found it, so she set it all up, and it was close by. It was so fun. It was 90s versus 2000s music, face-off, whatever. When you So, like, bands playing cover songs yeah. from the 90s and 2000s? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it was fun. So, like, the one group would play, they'd pick a category, and they'd each have to play a song from their decade from it, and then at the end you vote who's who wins. Did anyone play Stacy's Mom? yes. <gasps> Shut up. Yeah. That is so fun. That's really funny. Yeah, they did. <laughs> I love that song. Yeah, it was really funny. It was really fun. It was a blast. I had no idea what it was going to be like. And uh, yeah, it was really fun. But I mean, I was singing my head off. Yeah. <laughs> as you can Because it's like your jams. Yes. Hello. I told them yeah. that if they played Mandy, because they had a, a female singer category and they were clearly uh-huh. going to do like pop songs first. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, if they do Mandy more. Maybe will, Morris Candy. I, I, exactly. I will jump off this balcony. Did they do it? I'm here, so they didn't. Uh, damn. <laughs> How dare that you? That is so funny that they played Stacy's mom, though. I know. But, yeah, so that's that's what I was up to lately. Hi. How are you? Well, what are you up to? <laughs> I'm good. Uh, nothing nearly that exciting going on in my life. Um <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Just like work. Uh, the weather in California has shifted. Uh, it is now like kind of gloomy and overcast most mm. mornings. Uh, so my, what did I call myself? A seasonal witch. You sure did. <laughs> uh, for people who don't listen to our other podcast, I talked about how I, uh, in addition to being a music psychic, uh, also have seasonal witch powers and uh, can, can just tell by the change in the quality of the light when the seasons have shifted. Is that a magical uh, ability or what, folks? I mean, are you not impressed? <laughs> What's that line? Are you not entertained? Yes. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah. So anyway, it's just been kind of like gloomy and overcast here. Uh, nothing terribly exciting. Just been kind of doing some like home projecty type things. So I have you have I ever told you about a show called In the Dark? Hmm. Maybe. It sounds familiar. It's on Netflix, all, all of the seasons, because the final season happened. Um, it's all on Netflix. It stars a woman who is blind, who a friend of hers gets murdered, and she, like, wants to find out what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, it's, like, sort of mystery detective-y, and everybody in the show is kind of, like, morally gray characters, I think. Like, nobody, there's no clear, like, heroes or villains. Everybody's pretty gray Mm -hmm. uh and the actress who plays her is not blind in real life Mm -hmm. uh but so i can't really speak to like how accurate or if it's you know problematic in any ways regarding uh you know vision loss but uh it's entertaining and i clearly enjoy it enough to have watched i think four seasons of it so (laughs) 
Oh. Might I'm... be might be worth adding to your list at some point. Yeah, I don't think you have told me about that now that you described it. Okay. Yeah, that well, sounds good. there you go. We watched, or I watched the Dahmer series on Netflix. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know there's been a lot of controversy over that. Yes. Um, since then, I have finished it. And I I don't know what to say about the controversy. I'm not in these folks' shoes. Um, yeah. You brought up a point in the other one, because I was mentioning, like, you know, this isn't exactly the first time this case has been covered. No. <laughs> However, you know, you're like, you brought up the point that that's sort of the problem is that not only were they not contacted this time, but they usually aren't. So. Right. Uh, I, I think that's a real shame. I, I feel as though it was respectful. I feel as though it was well acted. Well, it was definitely well acted. I'll, I'll tell you that. Yeah. For sure. I don't know how I feel about all the controversy. I can't imagine what that feels like for people. Yeah. But, you know. It is out there, and I I would prefer that things that are out there are at least done in a way that isn't ex- ex- extremely exploitative. Yeah, yeah. So, um, we also I also watched a docu series. I think it's called Sins of the Mother on Netflix. Okay, that's the Lori Vallow story. Who less than three years ago, I think she is responsible for the deaths of her ch- two children. In okay. Idaho, uh-huh. because she believed that they were like dark souls or like zombies. Oh, this is ringing some bell. Yeah, and she thought that because the man she was cheating on her, or no, she killed. She had her husband killed first for the same reason. Then she was mm. with the guy who preached this kind of stuff, oh. and he convinced her that you know, in addition to her ex-husband, her who was killed. Being yes. one of these people, like also her kids are, and also all these other people are, and I think I saw a, like a, a promo for that, and there like there's a moment where it's the person that she is talking about, like her ex husband or whatever, uh, is like trying to tell other people like she's not well, like she's like there's some something going on with her, m- like mentally, but for some reason like they all think that he's got issues. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Is that the story that I'm no, thinking of? No one tr- well, no one trusted her. There is a detail in there where she was it could have been stopped years ago basically, but no right. one took it seriously. Right. Yes. I think because she appears very normal. Like she appears exactly. very ordinary. Um she's and, very and lucid him. in interviews and even in times when there's like when you know in the background terrible things are going on, she is very yes. calm and collected. And I think that's what it was, is, like, it looks like he is causing, like, he, it comes across as him, like, bashing his ex-wife, essentially, when he's, like, saying, like, no, she's not well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. I do remember seeing a a promo for that. Yeah, I think he even says something like, if something happens to me, like, I think he even has one of those, like, statements to somebody beforehand. Yeah. Like, if something happens to me, it's her. And then, of course, it happens. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a terrible story. It's there's a lot of baffling f elements to it if you're not aware of it, and there it it, mm-hmm. it 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 on the surface looks one way, and then when you find out like when you hear recorded conversations and you find out what they were telling each other, you're like, oh wait, this was a totally different thing, yeah. even even more, a little bit more sinister. So, um, I I definitely think this was a good series, though. It's all like interviews with the families of the survivors and victims um, involved so it's it's really good 
And it's on Netflix? Yeah. Okay. That's all I got, though. Well, shall we get into the episode? We should. It's our it's our season five premiere. I know. What the hell? What the hell? Can you believe it? I know. We'll talk about our feelings on this episode at the end. Oh, God. But I have feelings. Oh, boy. Well, <laughs> this is season five, episode one. It's called Second Opinion. And I think I have an idea of the inspiration. Okay. But we'll get there. All right. So the episode begins in a busy hospital. It's one of their favorite, like, go-tos, you know. Yes. It, it's like the the B footage, B-roll footage from an episode of ER. Yes, yes. Like, throw a camera on a, a stretcher a and just take it yeah. all throughout the hospital and really yeah. panicked. It's like that kind of thing. And we make our way through to the operating room. It's very high uh, stress, but... The person who is there on the table is in critical condition. They're trying to resuscitate her. They're not having any luck. They're using the, you know, clear, what do you call it, the defibrillators or something? Defibrillator, Thank yeah. You. Um, it's not working. And all of a sudden, one of the nurses goes, I'm going to try to do it exactly how she says it. So bad. <laughs> oh, my God, hold on. I'll need a sip of water. <laughs> okay. She goes, what's that smell? <laughs> Like, in the middle, they're like, scalpel, we're trying. What's that smell? And then she, like, stands straight up and looks out at nothing. Like, she's been, like, uh, paralyzed by fear. And they're like, what? And they just kind of move on. And moments later, you you hear, that smell. (laughs) (laughs) And she passes out immediately, drops right down. And the way she fainted was so theatrical. It was ridiculous. It was as if she was going to put her hand to her forehead and be like, oh. It was like that uh, that clip from that Bollywood movie of the woman who like wraps herself up with the, the curtain around her yes. neck as she's falling down. God, I love that. Oh, my God. It, it really was very that. <laughs> very, very that. So then we cut to Logan. He's got a haircut this season. His okay. I'm glad you said that because I was like, Logan looks good. Yeah, he looks a lot better. <sighs> he was looking a little disheveled. Yeah, hmm. but he's got a haircut now. He is talking to an officer in the hospital, and they're talking about the victim, uh, the person, not the fainting victim, the original <laughs> victim on the table. Right. Uh, her name was Ann Bennett, and she was a grade school teacher. She was admitted because she vomited and passed out while she was at work and they mm-hmm. rushed her to the hospital and it's and then there we are at the beginning of the episode so yep uh they don't have any information about the talk screen yet but for some reason her body is totally quarantined they don't know about the fainting nurse i guess yet so briscoe is with another doctor and they join logan they're talking about a how the nurse who fainted said She's, she smells something like dirty sweat socks. Mm-hmm. I mean, that... I smell dirty sweat socks. And pass out. Well, and also, the way she said, like, what's that smell? Yeah. Is as though it was... The reaction wasn't like, oh, that's a weird smell. It was, oh, my God, what's so what's like, about to happen? Like there's a fire. Like there's a fire exactly. and smoke in the room. Right, like she smelled smoke. And, yeah, it was it was really yeah. strange. So, anyway, she she passed out because the dirty sweat smell. And they're like, could that be poison? 
And they're like, well, it could be. There's a lot of things that, you know, cyanide could smell like, but we'll run tests. We'll see. Great. So all they know right now is that when they did the chest compressions on the body, when they were trying to resuscitate her, it released, it released fumes that knocked out the nurse. So that's all we got. Yeah. The opening credits began, and I had a little extra time. Uh, I even was able to get back in time to see our new cast member be introduced. Mm. Uh, but I thought I had, you know, a minute to take care of something. You know, we're trying to cut down on costs. So mm-hmm. I was like, I have a little project I could take care of real quick. So I went outside, and I installed solar paneling onto the roof of our uh, apartment complex. I didn't get a permission. I just... Went ahead and did it. Just did it. You know, you know, be you. Yeah. Follow your bliss. Be the change you want to see in the world. (laughs) That's right. And uh, by the time I finished installing it and, you know, canceling my electric and uh, as it were, I was ready to see Jack McCoy get introduced and the credits ended. Mm Mm-hmm. When we return, we're with the medical examiner who we've seen many, many, many seasons now with the red hair that varies from Demure to Joan Jett. You never know what you're going to get, really. Right? And don't even get me started with her later in this episode, because that is a a tour de force in comedy. But here, with this one, (laughs) we meet with the medical examiner, examiner, and they're like, what's the deal? It's been five days, no autopsy. And she says, listen... We don't know what it is. We have to take extra precautions. So she says a lot of words like hazmat and, you know, toxic and whatever. So This is the scene where she's, like, explaining to them why it'll take a few minutes. Like, it won't be immediate that they do the autopsy. Yeah, yeah. She's like, uh, maybe hazmat suit, whatever. And they're like, oh, well, what can you tell us? And she says, quote, pesticides, chemical warfare, hell. Maybe she's E.T.'s first cousin. Okay, so in addition to that gem of a line, I just need to point out also that in this scene, they are, she's like rushing around the room, prepping something, and she grabs a like container full of like test tube beakers. And they, it was just one of those moments where whoever was doing like set design and props for this episode had clearly never taken a chemistry class in their life because it was just like a rainbow assortment of colors. Like they literally got like food dye from the grocery store and made every color combination they could and made a little rainbow container of test tube liquids. It looked like jello shots. It did. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, so this is the kind of realism we're going for straight out the jump with uh, season five, episode one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So she makes this ridiculous comment about how she might be from uh, E.T.'s first cousin, even though the woman they're talking about was a grade school teacher who threw up and passed out and died within a day, less than like a few, less than a week ago. Right. So next, the detectives are discussing with uh, Lieutenant Van Buren, you know, what they have so far. And they say, you know, we haven't been able to get in touch with next of kin, the husband. And Briscoe says, I wonder if he knew his wife was from another galaxy. Again. Yeah, they're being really sensitive. <laughs> the woman is dead, and she's not even, like, someone they have a beef with. Right. She just was teaching school. Right. 
Lieutenant Van Buren says we should be treating this as a, as a homicide for now, thinking poisoning, and mm-hmm. it will will hope to be proven wrong. So, the detectives go down to the private school where the victim worked. They speak to the priest, who I'm assuming is like the you know principal, dean, whatever. And yep. he says, you know, she joined the staff two years ago. She used to work in public school. She's very well liked. And, uh, you know, I can't imagine anyone would do this, right? The usual. Yeah. They ask if anything unusual had happened lately. And he says, well, she's been losing weight a little lately. She seemed a little depressed. And they're like, all right, well, okay, fine. So they look in her classroom and they go through her garbage bag. In her garbage, which has not been changed in, I guess, seven days in her classroom, <laughs> even though I've never been in a school where the trash isn't changed every day. Yeah. But in her little uh, basket next to her desk, they find some trash. They find discarded food. And mm-hmm. they're using gloves, by the way. So they've really caught on. They're, like, using gloves in, in the scene. I'm shocked blown away i think it's only because they're not concerned about contaminating evidence it's because they're in the trash po- poison risk oh oh you're right damn it okay well a, a girl can dream yeah so <laughs> they're going through the stuff they find an old soda can and a food wrapper with some like old bits of food in it and they take it for evidence and by the way again this is seven days later so if this was a, th- a little piece of food with uh, this is nasty just saying so yeah Next, Briscoe is following up with someone forensics who examined the garbage. And he's like, yep, no cyanide in the soda. Uh, Everything seems up and up just ordinary. Which he is assessing based on the ingredients listed on the can. Right. Not, he didn't, there's no indication that he ran any test. It's just, he's reading the can's (laughs) ingredients. And then Briscoe goes, what about the Danish? And he goes, prune, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) (sighs) that actually made me laugh (laughs) ridiculous but yeah no poison trace on the little bits of food either so sorry they follow up with the widowed husband nicholas and he says that he was out of town and he heard about it on news and he had to call in and find out and look at this and he shows the newspaper and it says the fume lady on the front yeah it's like very sensationalized but i guess i mean honestly look at the stories we've looked at I, I shouldn't even make a joke like that's crazy. Yeah. So he is walking. This is a really bizarre scene, and I don't know if it was just bizarre to me, but I'm going to point it out regardless. The father, the dad, I'm sorry, the man, the widowed husband, Nicholas, he's walking them from, like, the front door to to his, like, study, I guess. And on the way, for no, like, there's no reason for this to happen. They're walking around. You see nobody else there. They're just kind of walking. The camera's panning. They're chatting. Out of nowhere, there is a um, scene where he introduces them to a piece of furniture that he calls Lynn. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. That's his daughter. His daughter, Lynn. She, right. She's just placed haphazardly in the hallway, standing, facing forward. As they pass her, she doesn't even turn her head to, to watch them. She doesn't walk. She doesn't move. She doesn't Nothing. speak. And they're just walking around her, and he goes, like, he's like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. This is my daughter, Lynn. And then immediately afterwards, the detectives go, hi, Lynn. And then immediately afterwards, they move on, well, and she doesn't respond. And she never has another part in the rest of the episode. No, but no. 
she what's really weird is like the it's as though the director of the episode said okay when they when they speak to you do not move do not blink just be there and paralyzed by fear right it's so strange i don't know if you i don't think you've ever seen the room yet um, no. Oh, that I know that's on our list. That's going to be so fun to to review for Patreon. You're going to die. But there's a wait. there's a scene that gets talked about a lot in it with dialogue that is really rapid like that back and forth, and it's yeah. just like this where it's like, "This is my daughter Lynn. Hi, Lynn. Anyway, where are we going? Uh, yeah. There's a scene where uh, <laughs> there's a scene where the main character is walking into the uh, like a deli for and it's it means nothing for the whole movie as most of the movie is. Um, and he goes, the, this is how quick the dialogue between him and the person behind the counter is. I'm not even going to exaggerate. Oh, hi. Hi. A dozen roses. No problem. Here you go. Haven't seen you in a while. Haven't seen you either. Bye, doggy. Bye-bye. And then he walks out. And he, like, pets a dog <laughs> randomly. And it's it's literally like the Olympics of get these lines out as fast as you can. <laughs> it's like Gilmore Girls level speed, speed talking. so bizarre. So... He introduces them to his furniture daughter. Uh, they go into the study, and he says he is disgusted by the suggestion that his wife was poisoned because she s- was surviving breast cancer, and so that's what ultimately took her. Yeah. And how I thought to myself at first, like, how do they not know this? Like, wouldn't this be in her medical records? Like, you would think. take time, but we'll get there. So they go and they call her, who were supposed to believe is her last doctor but it's you know whoever she was going to for treatment last we should say yes yes and she's i thought she was a doctor for like the first half of the episode so i was writing her as dr haas but we'll just call yes. her ms haas haas. <laughs> haas the haas we'll call her yeah so um they're like we'll go talk to her but they can't because she's out of town she's doing a like speaking tour mm-hmm. so they're like all right let's poke around their private lives and they go to Bennett's Antiques, which is the business that the husband runs. He's an antiques dealer. And I don't know what they were going for here, but the music in this scene oh, is... I didn't even notice it. And you have to go back and listen. Okay. It took, I don't know how you missed it. It took me so by surprise. I could have been in the next room, and I would have been like, who changed the channel? It was like a fife... And like a pan flute and like a, a, a lute, maybe. It was like the most Renaissance like Festival, a Renaissance Middle Earth Hobbit pub experience in this Renaissance, in this, I almost said Renaissance shop, in this vintage, uh, what is Antique. it, antique shop. For, why? <laughs> And then they have this sprite little guy come over and go, oh, how can I help you? And he's very, um, his timber and his voice does not help take you out of the Willow fantasy either. He was very strange. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He tells them that he and his wife, who, you know, he works at the shop, were friends with the Bennets, and they're all very happy. Very happy, no indication of anything going on. So nothing out of the ordinary. And they're like, nothing out of the ordinary? And he's like, well... There have been a couple of layoffs lately, and uh, my paycheck bounced yesterday. I guess that's out of the ordinary. <laughs> and they're like, uh, duh. Okay, now we have some motives going on, some financial things. Let's go see what else we can find out. So they leave the Shire, the Hobbit Shire, <laughs> and they go to speak to a banker of some type, uh, undisclosed. But he happens to know all of their banking information and, and says they're broke, basically. So yeah. 
Okay, now they're like, well, and they talk to this next woman. I don't know if she's an insurance representative, a coworker, someone off the street eating a sandwich. It, <clears throat> not clear, but she says that Anne was not covered for her cancer treatment under her insurance policy. Yep. And so she was. She had to basically pay out of pocket for these anything she did do, which means that's why nobody knew about it. I think she was a, like an administrator at the school. Okay, I, I was very unclear. I was like, yeah. who is this? I thought it was, I was like, I, this is not an insurance rep. I talked to them on the phone all day, and this is not an insurance <laughs> rep. Um, <laughs> if it were, I'd be like, most unrealistic thing I've ever seen in my yeah. life. <laughs> uh, so Logan then goes and has the widowed husband come down to the station just to chat with him. Not an interrogation, just like an informal at his desk. And he says to this man, you know what the real crime is? The healthcare system, man, you know? You feel me? And the guy's like, uh, I think the real crime is that my wife and mother is of dead. my child is dead. Yeah. Hello. And Logan's like, well, how much were your medical bills? Had to be like 50K. And he's like, try double. So Logan's like, hmm. And the guy goes, I, I can see what you're doing, by the way, and I didn't kill my wife, and I certainly wouldn't have done it over money if I already was broke. So Logan then says, well, maybe you did it because you didn't want to see her suffer. And at this point, there's not really any actual evidence of poisoning yet. It's all basically like maybe. Right. So I'm like, wow, they're really going hard on this guy. Really, really hard, yeah. Nothing comes of it. They talk to Van Buren, the two detectives, and they mention, well, you know— the victim, they're saying she died of breast cancer complications. And Van Buren immediately says, oh, this sounds like the, the side effects of a, of a drug called Liatril? Yeah. Liatril. Liatril. Liatril, thank you. And it's kind of, this part is the only part that's weird. Well, hold on. So first she says it sounds like this, this drug Liatril might be at fault based on this case and now knowing that the victim had breast cancer. And they're like, oh, what are you, a doctor? And she's like, no, I'm a woman who cares about my health, so I pay attention. Yep. And they're like, okay, you, you got us there. Um, and they're like, well, cyanide was found in her system. So they, they now find this out. They find this out. Cyanide's been found in their system. And they're like, yep, this sounds like Liatril. What? Wait, so li- we're meant to believe that this Liatril drug on the system, or a- out in the on the market, rather, is... Not only like experimental, but has traces of cyanide reported and people are taking it? Yeah, like I guess like the results show up as cyanide in the system or something. Very strange, very strange. But that's what we're believing in this law and order uh, universe. So so they finally get a hold of Haas, the Haas. They get this person down and they go to talk to her and she says that she was treating her using hers like standard metabolic treatment method. It's all natural and, you know, organic. It's very that. And yep. it's it's good for you without any of the, you know, side effects of these dangerous chemicals. And it allows my patients to have a better quality of life. I'm not concerned with their inevitable passing because we're all going to die. What I'm concerned about is their quality of life in the meantime. Right. And they're like, do you use Liatril? Liatril? And she says, no, I'm a scientist, not a witch doctor. And she goes, my maid will see you out. And I was like, well, 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 well. 
Right. I was like, wow, okay, you're a rich woman. Apparently. Yeah, all right. Mm, lap of luxury. How the other half lives. So they go back and talk to the husband again, and he is wearing pants that are so hiked up and his shirt is so tucked in. I was like, wow, this is like the most dad, dad outfit I've ever seen. Yes. He says, Anne, and he rarely talked about her cancer. Um, it was just too difficult of a conversation, so they just didn't talk about it. I mean, no judgment. I'm not in that situation, but that must be very isolating yes. for both parties. He doesn't know anything about what she could have been taking or not or what claims her doctor might have had for her or whatever. So the little law trio, uh, they go eat pizza in in the office after hours, and they're kind of talking about the case and we learn a little bit more about Van Buren. They're clearly, like, setting up her, you know, side story kind of business. Uh, she starts to talk about her husband and her kids and how important they are to her. And that's why she's able to empathize with the victim. Because at least she was making her own choices about how to deal with her cancer treatment. Right. Um, so they're like, why don't you two, like, have a little bit more sympathy, a little more empathy, and go talk to her previous doctor and find out, like, what's going on for real before you have a judgment. So they go talk to this previous doctor, and he says that he had found a lump years ago, and he recommend, recommended a mastectomy. Uh, and seven months ago, he r- repeated to her that the surgery was no longer like recommended but urgent, but she wanted a second opinion, and so he, she went to the Haas. And when the detec- detectives mention to him that it's the Haas that she went to, he's like, huh, you want to know what I think about her? He says... You know, ask these three former patients about her. You want to reach them? They're dead. Yeah. And they're like, all right, thanks for the theatrics. Well, we got it. She's she's a quack, he says. He's a, <laughs> she's a quack. So they're like, all right. He says he's tried to get her shut down, but, like, he doesn't have that power. He's not on the medical review board or whatever. So they go talk to someone there, which I would imagine would probably take months to get a, a meeting here. Right. But they're in... In Lake Flint, it looks like a library. I, I was unsure where they were for a while, um, but they're talking to some associate that works there. She lists out all of the Haas's credentials, and they're like, hmm, no med school, no doctorate degree. And they're like, well, she's not a doctor, but she doesn't really say she's studying medicine or practicing medicine. medicine. She says she's practicing nutritional counseling. Mm-hmm. So... She's only offering alternatives, not a cure, so she's kind of in the clear. In the next scene, uh, Kincaid agrees that, you know, it's hard to say what happened. We should get an autopsy and and go from there. Within seconds, the phone rings, though. Nicholas has called, the widowed husband. Or Nicholas has filed a motion to have his wife's body released to him. So they only have 24 hours now to do an autopsy. Next, we get a scene from 12 Monkeys on the surface of Mars. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's just the medical examiner in the most ridiculous hazmat suit I've ever seen. I thought I was watching a sci-fi movie for a second. It literally cut to a scene where someone in a chamber is wearing a bright orange suit with, like, the yellow and black caution shit all over it and walking mm-hmm. through, like, a foggy room, pulling the hat off and being drenched in sweat. Yeah. What planet am I on? Very <laughs> dramatic. Very dramatic. Extremely. So she takes 500 years to decompress from coming back to Earth. And when she gets out of the suit, she is, again, drenched in sweat. Like, she is Sigourney Weaver, an alien. 
And Shut up. <laughs> I was going to make that exact joke. I hate you. <laughs> it's exactly the whole vibe. Even the vibe of it being like a sci-fi thriller. Yes. I don't know why we switched into this vibe. I mean, imagine Law & Order Season 5 just decided to switch it up, and it's like, it's now like a sci- sci-fi mystery. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. So, anyway, when she decompresses and comes back to Earth and wipes the sweat from her brow, she says that the victim indeed died of liver cancer and not poisoning, and that the cyanide that was there was trace amounts at most. So, much ado about nothing, it looks like. Mm-hmm. In the next scene, we meet Stone's replacement, who is Jack McCoy, played by Sam Watterson, who I know you have feelings about. I'm sure they yeah. weren't made much better by this episode, but we'll see as the series goes on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so Jack and, or I guess I should say McCoy, McCoy and Kincaid are meeting for the first time. They have a little, like, back and forth uh, battle of wits like oh I've heard some things about you McCoy I heard you date all your assistants or you've dated you know whatever and he's like I've only dated three god forbid I have relationships with somebody and it was all consensual one was actually my wife and yeah don't don't judge a book by its cover and she's like fair enough and hopefully that won't be a problem of course not and they have this like little smirk on their faces like okay we can get along we're gonna work together well and he says, all right, let's move on, uh, on to the case. I don't care if she didn't die of poisoning or not. We're still going to go after the Haas because if she's, like, selling Leotril on the DL, like, that's not okay. So here's the warrant. And she's like, wow, you already got the warrant. Let's do it. They talk to a doctor, I think. He's a doctor. He talks a lot about poisons and stuff, and he's eating a hamburger um, then he does this really disgusting thing where he takes a bite of the hamburger, he's chewing it, he cu- maybe swallows it, and then he takes a carton of milk, and he picks it up and drinks milk from the carton while eating hamburger. Mm. I, I know people do milk with dinner, I, I, I think, or at least they did on the Brady Bunch. I don't know who does that. I'm sorry. Milk with dinner to me is an atrocity. <laughs> I'm I'm sick thinking about drinking milk and eating a hamburger at the same time. My family used to do milk oh. with dinner, and I can't I can't stand the idea of drinking milk anymore. I don't know if it's because my body can't handle it. I I tend to have uh, mixed results <laughs> when <laughs> when uh, consuming dairy beverages. Uh, but I mean, it's kind of like milkshake milkshake with a burger, just without the ice cream part. Uh. No. Okay. No. Oh, I I was I was very triggered when I saw when I saw him put that milk cart into his lips. I was thinking as it was going up to his mouth, I was like, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> so he says he analyzed the data and he says that the cyanide found was most likely from apricot seeds, apricot seeds, as they say on the show. What do you say, apricot or apricot? I say apricot. Me too. Me too. The Haas and the Haas's attorney show up. The Haas's attorney has the same voice as the receptionist in the Beetlejuice or in Monsters, Inc. Oh, my God. I love her voice. It was great. I was it here was so for good. it. I was here for it. And I, uh, I, She is pretty well-known, but or at least she's done a lot of acting, but I didn't <sighs> recognize her specifically from anything. I loved her, and I know, I know we've seen her before, and I think we'll see her again. Uh, yeah. She is 
again, with her client, and they're meeting with McCoy and Kincaid. And they're all, you know, having that face-off. Should we take this? Should we not? You should just give us a deal. You don't have the evidence. You don't have the balls. You can't handle the truth kind of moment. <laughs> you know, it's that whole thing. And uh, yeah. <laughs> we find out from the Haas that, yes, apricot seeds are an ingredient in, I guess, her tinctures or whatever she's giving people. And she's like, give me a break. It's fruit. And McCoy says, you're not selling fruit. You're selling false hope. Ooh. And so she offers, like, a ridiculous deal where, like, she walks, and they're like, of course not. So they storm out and say, we'll see you in court. They don't really have anything on her, though. Um, no. Unless they can prove that she was promising her patients that she was curing them and not offering alternative treatments, they kind of are at a dead end. Yeah. So Kincaid goes to check on some of her current patients to see what she's telling them. And her her visits to them could have been like a cramps commercial medicine where they're like canoeing and climbing mountains and uh, white water rafting because everyone she goes to is very active and can't talk to her. They're gardening. They're out yes. in the middle of the field. <laughs> they're in the middle of a task that they can't stop doing. Um, but they're all very happy. Uh, the first one she speaks to is... Uh, working at a clothing store where everything is taupe colored and mm -hmm. she says that she loved her treatment and it's she's currently on it it's saving her life and i'm not going to implicate her for anything then yeah. she talks to the gardening woman uh she says that she was taking her treatment she had been promised she'd be cured she eventually stopped seeing her because her doctor her husband convinced her to have the operation and remove her breast and she tells her story, and it's a very, like, you know, sad testimony of how hard that experience has been for her and how it still lives with her. Kincaid canvasses all of the previous patients. Uh, she finds out, you know, I don't have a lot of concrete data. I have a lot of patients who said they loved her and they're not implicating her. And I have about a handful of people who said she did mention that she would cure them. And they kind of face off about what, is it worth it? Is she doing a good thing? Is it... Is it helping people? McCoy gets her to see his side by saying, like, what about all these other people on the list you didn't check off? And we discover it's because they've all passed. Mm. And, you know, so Kincaid realizes, like, okay, the numbers are really not in her favor. Just because a few people are having a positive experience, they could have been having that without her, too. Yeah. So they have enough evidence they feel now there they can go and... Um, arrest her so they go and they arrest her at her house and in the next scene we have this weird face-off where Schiff like scolds McCoy for a premature arrest but McCoy basically says oh well I did it and then we move on and we never see Schiff again <laughs> yeah um McCoy and the defense attorney argue in chambers with the judge because the defense attorney wants the case dismissed and uh at the very least for a lot less evidence to be admitted in so he kind of splits it down the middle and says, yes, we're going to trial, but no, we will not include any evidence from previous cases from previous patients, only Anne. Kincaid and McCoy argue in the next scene about the validity of the case again. It gets pretty heated. They have this very pointless, amateur conversation about feminism. Yeah. It feels like a very weak attempt at, like, law and order, saying, like, look, we're presenting this other viewpoint uh, that is often misunderstood, and Kincaid is so strong of a character. Like, I think that's what they're trying to go for here. 
but yeah. it really doesn't do any of that because everything McCoy says in the scene is like so undermining and disgusting. Yeah, it's very, like, they've done this a couple of times in Law & Order with, like, Stone, where it's, like, whoever the men are in, like, the DA's office, like, understand what, like, what women need better than the women right, do. It's right. very irritating. Yeah, and one of uh, McCoy's quotes in this little back and forth is, it's a tits and ass world, and men are pigs, and we should all rot in hell, right? Ah, oh, God. I mean, based on you saying that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, seriously. So um, this goes on for a minute too long, and then we go to trial. The prosecution tries to establish that Haas shaved years off of the victim's life, but the defense then cross-examines the um, witnesses and basically gets everyone to say, you know, there's really no way to know. There's no way to know what could have caused this. It could have happened yeah. either way. They get the widowed husband on the stand, and he says that, uh, you know, he gives his whole testimony, his whole story of everything that happened, and on the defense asks him, did the Haas ever tell your wife she was going to cure her? And he says, no, I don't, I, I have no way of knowing that. I don't know what he t- she told my wife. So then we have a scene in Chambers, it's like after hours, and it's the order trio hanging out. And they're like, oh, what are we going to do? We're discussing the strategy of the case. It didn't go great. And through some reasoning, McCoy figures out that maybe Mr. Bennett actually did speak to Haas personally. And maybe she did actually tell him personally about the curing thing. And he's, like, using, like, a word trick to get out of it. So they want to put it back on the stand. They talk to him about this. And there's a heated back and forth, which evolves into, like, a psychoanalytical monologue um, from McCoy to the widowed husband and he finally breaks and admits it that you know the two of them did think she was going to cure his wife and they did trust her and they saw her together then we cut to a scene where Haas is offering some kind of social commentary on healthcare for cancer patients which I'm sure is very relevant but it's just kind of added on at the very end of the episode and it's coming out of the mouth of the villain so I don't know how how much it hit um, but she offer and she's also offering it as her alibi for the reason that she, you know, is telling her patients that they can live if they drink her juice. Yeah. Um, they say that she's going to get man one, probably 15 years. And that is the end of the episode. <sighs> yeah. <Well>. Yeah. <laughs> um, are you ready to hear the crime that this or incident slash whatever that this case was based off of. Yes, I, I have a feeling I know what it is. Okay, what do you think it is? I don't remember the woman's name, but I remember a case okay. I've heard about a million times where she went to the operating room for something and her her body emitted this nauseous gas or whatever, noxious fume, and mm-hmm. uh, knocked people out or maybe even got people sick for like long periods of time and they've never quite figured it out and there's a lot of theories about what it could be and i think there's a a running theory that is most commonly accepted now well you are correct this story Mm. is based on the death of gloria ramirez Mm. and uh this is one of those stories where the the like life of the person is like not talked about it's all about like the incident so unfortunately i don't have a lot of information about gloria herself um, aside from like a couple of quotes from family members in newspaper articles, mm-hmm. 
what I did learn about her is that she was born uh, January 11th, 1963 in Riverside, California. And at the time of this incident, she was 31 years old, um, had two children, a 12-year-old girl named Evelyn and a nine-year-old boy named Buddy. And uh, what a lot of the articles don't kind of like mention at first that we seem to have learned later on is that she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer Mm -hmm. and seems to have been kind of like in the later stages or like it, it hadn't been like caught soon enough or treated soon enough. Okay. But on February 19th of 1994, uh, Gloria was transported to the host to Riverside general hospital, um, for severe heart palpitations and, uh, breathing irregularity. Uh, she was experiencing tachycardia, which is resting heart rate over a hundred beats per minute and a breathing pattern that is called, I think it's, chain, C-H-E-Y-N-E, chain stokes respiration, which is uh, where your breathing gets progressively deeper and faster. So kind of like gasping for breath. Mm. Uh, and and you can like stop breathing for uh, up to, or you can stop breathing. And it's like kind of like a cycle that repeats every 30 seconds to two minutes. Um, and it's a pattern that is most often seen in people who are experiencing congestive heart failure, Um, and it can be caused from like heart or kidney failure, poisoning, uh, a tumor, stroke, etc. Wow. So upon her arrival to the hospital, uh, Gloria was kind of like disoriented, uh, seems to have been in a state of distress and was treated with a mix of sedatives, uh, including Valium, Versed, and Ativan. And my mother-in-law is a nurse. And so I texted her because I was like, it seems weird to me that she was treated with a mix of sedatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, so I just was like, is that common? And she said that she had never seen someone treated with multiple sedatives before. So that seemed unusual to her. Yeah. Um, she was, uh, she worked in, as an ER nurse for, I think, a few years and then also did like labor and delivery and then uh, like surgery um nursing work so she said that that seemed strange to her but it's you know not outside the realm of possibilities okay okay um gloria did not appear to respond to this treatment uh and it seems like she coded and they defibrillated defibrillated her heart to try to restore a normal heartbeat and while this was all happening, um, several staff said that they noticed an oily sheen on her body mm. and that they noticed a smell that they described as almost like garlic coming from her. And nurse Susan Kane then drew some blood from Gloria and said later that she noticed an ammonia-like smell coming from the tube and handed the blood sample to uh, Dr. Julie Gachinsky who noticed, said that she noticed what looked like manila-colored particles floating in her blood, and she would say in later interviews that she's never seen anything like that. Mm. Nurse Kane then fainted and was removed from the room, and shortly after, uh, Dr. Gorchinsky began to feel nauseous and complained of being lightheaded and walked a few feet to a nurse's desk to sit down. And another staff member came over and asked Dr. Gochinsky if she was okay. But before she could respond, Dr. Gochinsky also fainted. So weird. Yeah. 
Respiratory therapist Maureen Welch, who was also present while Gloria was being treated, was the third person to faint. And several other staff reported that they smelled an ammonia-like odor odor in the emergency room. And so it was then that staff were ordered to evacuate all emergency room patients and personnel to the parking lot outside the hospital, while a skeleton crew uh, remained behind to treat Gloria. At about 8.50 p.m., uh, after like 45 minutes um, after she had arrived, uh, you know, and they attempted to resuscitate her, Gloria Ramirez was pronounced dead. And the result was uh, determined to be kidney failure related to her cancer that had metastasized. So of the 37 emergency room workers on duty when she was brought in, 23 people fell ill, five of whom were hospitalized with symptoms similar to those aforementioned, including loss of consciousness, shortness of breath, muscle spasms, and nausea. It's like, can you imagine... It would be so alarming. So news of the incident spread pretty quickly, and uh, the hospital kind of seemed to point the finger at Gloria Ramirez as being the cause of the incident. And so the media quickly began referring to her as the toxic lady or the toxic fume lady. Mm. So that like newspaper article that they reference in the episode seems to actually be pretty accurate. Yeah. And the theories of, like, what happened were all over the map. So some theorized that she had taken, she had, you know, attempted suicide and that uh, she had ingested some kind of chemicals that caused this kind of, like, mass... uh, I'm going to use the word outbreak, even though I don't know that that's accurate, but it's an an easy way to describe, like, the, the mass medical symptoms that people experience. Okay, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the theories range from her, you know, ingesting poison to some of the articles were like, she's an alien. And this, you know, it was like an, uh, an alien blood situation that caused these mass symptoms. So as you can imagine, the main thing that I want to say about all of that is that this was really hard on the Ramirez family. Uh, Several of the articles talked about like, we're trying to like, mourn the passing of our mother our sister you know our daughter and all of these articles are like this alien woman this woman who attempted suicide and like you know none of that is accurate yeah so um all of this like trauma that the ramirez family experienced was also exacerbated by the fact that uh gloria's older sister had died of a heart attack after receiving care at the same hospital just two months before So the Ramirez family, after Gloria's passing, was notified that she had died as a result of natural causes uh, due to her cancer. Uh, But they thought that this kind of report that the hospital had given to the media of Gloria being the source of this mass outbreak of whatever was actually the hospital's attempt to cover up, like, failings on the part of the hospital. And so they were like, you're essentially, like, smearing my, like— mother sister's name and our family name to cover up something that the hospital did wrong because there's nothing that would explain her being this cause of like a mass outbreak of symptoms right and it's so unfair because she's not there to defend herself exactly and they did hold on to her body for quite a while uh so this whole part in the episode of like you know we want to be really cautious with the autopsy and all of that 
seems to somewhat be based in fact. Like, they did hold on to her body for, like, longer than they should have, and uh, the family was, like, upset by this because it's like, they they can't bury her, they can't mourn, etc. Mm-hmm. So an investigation into the cause of the incident was launched by the California Department of Health and Human Services, uh, and they appointed two lead scientists, Dr. Anna Maria Osorio and Dr. Kirsten Waller, to lead the investigation. And they interviewed 34 hospital staff who had been working in the emergency room the night that Gloria was brought in uh, and, you know, kind of had like a standardized questionnaire that they ran along with some blood work of uh, various staff members. And all of the blood work came back totally normal after the incident, but they did find some commonalities among the people who had experienced severe symptoms. And those commonalities were people who had been within two feet of Gloria Ramirez, as well as people who had handled her intravenous lines. Um, Those were the people who seemed to experience the most severe symptoms. And those who were afflicted tended more often to be women than men. Mm. And so these doctors uh, concluded that this outbreak, whatever, was likely caused by mass hysteria or uh, mass psychogenic illness. So their their findings said, quote, the findings from our and other investigations are most compatible with an outbreak of mass sociogenic illness, perhaps triggered by an odor, uh, and that the fainting was likely caused by, quote, anxiety or other psychological stresses. Wow. So- Mass psychogenic illness is a phenomenon that's still not very well understood, but it has commonalities, uh, and those are um, symptoms with a rapid onset as well as rapid recovery, occurrence in a segregated group. So remember when I did that story about the family in Australia who was like kind of isolated and they experienced that mass hysteria? Uh, So tends to be a segregated group. Uh, in situations of extraordinary anxiety. And most often there is a, or not most often, there is often a preponderance of women involved in instances of mass hysteria. However, a quick detour into hysteria Mm -hmm. is a uh, phenomenon that was used in medicine starting in the early 1880s to essentially describe women who were upset or whose behavior was erratic or uh, their symptoms. What's that? Who had a feeling. Literally, it it was a a thing that was like picked up by Sigmund Freud and essentially was uh, used as a way to excuse or explain women's pain, women's suffering without actually like looking at any of the causes. And there are Tons and tons of studies uh, about how women receive unequal treatment in medicine. Um, they're much more likely to have their pain ignored. So there's this really long history of like diagnosing uh, physical symptoms or like uh, psychological symptoms as like oh it's just you know women being hysterical. So the f- the minute that I saw that more women experienced this case with. Uh, or symptoms in this case with Gloria Ramirez, I was like, oh, of course they would come up with this being an, an incident of mass hysteria. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was my first thought, too. Yeah. So Dr. Gorchinsky denied that she had experienced symptoms as a result of mass hysteria. She actually, after the incident, spent two weeks in intensive care with continued breathing problems. Uh, hepatitis, avascular necrosis, which is death of bone tissue in her knees, 
Um, so she experienced really severe symptoms, and a couple others did too. And um, I'll mention later that, like, up to uh, several years after the incident, uh, Dr. Gorchinsky still experienced symptoms, as did multiple others. So, again, this explanation of mass hysteria really doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dr. Gorchinsky, as well as a couple of the others who experienced severe symptoms and lasting symptoms, ended up filing lawsuits alleging improper conduct on the part of the hospital, as well as investigative agencies. And in Dr. Gorchinsky's case, her claims were based in part on that she was treated by a physician named Dr. Philip Edelman, who was a medical poison expert who examined her without identifying the fact that he was also a a consultant for the county and the state. Uh, So he made uh, entries in her medical records that she claimed adversely affected her treatment uh, it, so that the investigation wouldn't find that it was um, uh, da, 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 uh, the fault of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Be- because he ruled out what's called organophosphates, which is an ingredient used in pesticides as well as nerve gases, and said that she should stop receiving treatment for those. However, many of the other patients... Uh, who had experienced symptoms, continued to retrieve treatment for organophosphates. Uh, And so she alleged that this was the hospital's attempt to cover up that they had been exposed to a poison uh, the night of the incident. Mm. During the investigation, uh, it was found that the emergency room had been sprayed with pesticide five days prior to the incident. However, This appears to have been a weekly routine procedure, and so it was pretty quickly dismissed as a cause for the uh, night of the incident, uh, especially because no one in the intervening time between the pesticide spraying and the night of the incident experienced any similar symptoms. Mm. So the the idea that this was caused by the routine pesticide spraying seems unlikely. But uh, one thing that they did find was that the... um, there was uh, construction work happening in a room nearby the emergency room and that a like sewer valve may have been left uncapped. And so uh, Gorchinsky, her lawsuits contended that the pest control workers had treated the emergency room and left residue in the plumbing system that then kind of like created a toxic fume that like caused the symptoms. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, um, so, like, e- each possible p- possibility is more, like, random and weird than the next. Yes, and it will get stranger. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, the coroner's office performed their autopsy, and like I said, it, it was kind of that, like, dramatic uh, scene, like in the Law & Order episode, oh like God, they stop. were wearing, you know, their protective suits, and they had air tanks to make sure that if these fumes had originated from Gloria Ramirez's body that they were protected. Wow. Um, And the coroner's office also worked with uh, an organization called the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory to kind of like analyze the findings. And uh, they, you know, collected chemicals in the air from the coffin that she had been placed in temporarily to kind of like see if there was still any residual chemicals in the air but they ruled out any toxic fumes from emanating from her body okay and so attorney for the county uh bill rittner said that the 
true cause of what happened that night may never be known, saying, quote, quite frankly, medical science is a little baffled as to what is going on. So I mentioned the sewer drain, and uh, a f- probably like seven or eight months, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, after the incident, Riverside Hospital told the media, like, yeah, we found that a uh, a sewer drain in the emergency room might have been might have been uncapped the night of the incident because work had been going on in that area, and uh, hospitals, uh, hospital employees, like told them um, that they had smelled like ammonia smells. Ultimately, the what they found, according to county spokesman Tom DeSantis, is that there he said engineers. Uh, looked at this and told us there is no reason to suggest this is significant. We do not think this is a problem, but we wanted to notify the media since people are continuing to seek answers for this. Dr. Gorchinsky and her lawyer said that, uh, you know, what disturbs me is that they say eight months, they said this eight months later. I don't know whether they're scared, incompetent, or covering something up. So they were like, how could you not have known this or told anybody for eight months. Gorchinsky's attorney said, this is something everyone should have known from the beginning. We always felt they did only a cursory inspection, uh, but how do you miss a torn up room? Because again, there was construction in that room, et cetera. Right. You know, DeSantis, the spokesperson for the county said, it's possible that fumes could have escaped from the uncapped line, but uh, it's more likely that the workers put a temporary cap on the line during construction. And additionally, kind of um, countering the, the idea that the, these fumes, if there were any fumes, were the cause of this is that the trauma bay where somebody would be treated and the utility room where this uh, construction had been occurring have independent ventilation systems. And so had there been any fumes, the air wouldn't have been drawn into the same hmm. space. Hmm. So continued question marks. Yeah. So the analysis of Ramirez's remains found no trace of poisons, pesticides, or any other toxic chemicals that would have caused this outbreak. However, the the laboratory said that they, they kind of like put forward a theory, uh, which was that maybe she had been using something called dimethyl sulfide or DMSO, which had been used as kind of like a folk remedy for ever. It was essentially kind of like, I think it has other uses, but it was kind of one of those like cure-all snake oil type remedy things that people had been using for years to like treat everything from like emphysema to cancer. Right. Okay. However, the government had prohibited it, it as a use for any kind of like medical treatment for years. Uh, but you can still get it at like hardware stores because I, I I forgot to write it down, but I, I think it had been created as something like for like a wood adhesive or something like that. Oh, wow. And it just like people s- started using it saying like, oh, it cleared up my XYZ. So DMSO, when people did use it, uh, it's kind of used topically, which they thought might have explained the like, you know, she, greasy look yeah. on some of the areas of Gloria's skin. And DMSO, when used topically, some users report a garlic-like taste in their mouths. Mm. So they're like, oh, you know, somebody reported a garlic-like taste. They saw an oily sheen. Maybe it's this DMSO product. And uh, she was using it because of her, you know, advanced cancer treatment and wasn't getting any kind of, you know, hope from traditional medicine. So that was their kind of theory that they put out. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So their theory, according to these forensic scientists, was that the ovarian cancer had metastasized to her kidney, which was kind of the cause of death, and that her failing kidneys caused an accumulation of DMSO in her um, in her system. And that when she was being transported to the hospital, she had received oxygen because she was having trouble breathing. And when DMSO is exposed to oxygen, it uh, causes a chemical reaction that transforms it to DMSO4, uh, dimethyl sulfate, which can be a toxic gas uh, when it's exposed to oxygen. So the theory is that she received this oxygen, and then when her blood was drawn in the emergency room, it ca- it escaped into the room and caused this outbreak of symptoms. Mm. So Nancy Schultz, who is a spokesperson for the manufacturer of DMSO, when this theory started uh, gaining traction in the media, said, quote, after 20 years of clinical use, there are no clinical reports in the literature that indicate any relationship whatsoever between DMSO and toxic gases. Also contradicting this theory is that DMSO4 is an odorless gas, and so that wouldn't have explained the ammonia-like smell that many people reported. Dr. Jack Latore, who is head of neurological, or sorry, neurosurgical research at the University of New Mexico, and an expert on uh, dimethyl sulfate poisoning, DMSO4, said that this theory is impossible. He said that DMSO4 poisoned victims' eyes begin tearing, they begin coughing, and other symptoms are delayed or only appear six hours later. So he's like, the, the symptoms that these people reported experiencing are not consistent with DMSO4 poisoning. Hmm. I was going to say, that he sounds said, like it answers every question, but... It does, <laughs> but it doesn't. <laughs> He said people don't faint immediately, they don't have nausea, or any of these other like muscle spasm symptoms that these people reported having. Uh, he said skin contact uh, causes burns, uh, you know, it's, it's not consistent. And a, another doctor, Dr. Stanley Jacob, said that thousands of medical articles have found no such reaction, and among thousands of people who have used DMSO, such a reaction has never occurred. So he said also that, you know, let's assume that DMSO had converted to DMSO4 in her system and that, you know, they drew her blood. He says, even if this syringe were entirely full of DMSO4 and it spilled in the emergency room, the exposure that the hospital workers would have experienced would not have exceeded safety limits set by the National Occupational Safety and Health Administration. So... It wouldn't have violated OSHA conditions, the amount of poison that they would have been exposed to. University of California Riverside chemistry professors Mike Rettig and Chuck Castro, um, along with another retired professor, said that this chemical reaction that had been put out there in the media, it, it, it just doesn't work like that. They said, like, atoms don't simply bond together in the way that the Livermore theory said that it could have happened. Their article said, quote, it would be the equivalent of your arm popping out of your shoulder socket and connecting to your feet. Like They were just like, it just doesn't work like that. And Deal said that he applied the Livermore formulas described and figured that to get the chemical conversion to the toxic gas, more than half of Ramirez's blood would have had to have been DMSO2. And he Mm. said, that's just not going to happen in somebody who is alive. So... 
and family remember, members of the Ramirez family said that Gloria Ramirez didn't use DMSO2 or DMSO. And uh, investigators who had searched her apartment found no evidence of DMSO. And the hospital says, you know, or they said, like, the hospital was the source of any toxic fumes, not Gloria. So the Ramirez family ended up having to file suit against the Riverside uh, Riverside County to get her body released uh, so that they could bury her. And they also filed suit alleging wrongful death, medical malpractice, negligence, and intentional infliction of emotional distress uh, by putting out this theory that Gloria was the source of this outbreak. So... They ended up holding Gloria Ramirez's body for more than two months uh, while they performed all these investigations, uh, and a judge ordered the release of her remains to the Ramirez family so that they could perform their own forensic analysis. However, the ability to perform another autopsy or analysis of what caused her death was um, impeded by the fact that her body was too badly decomposed at this point, and Mm. some of her organs were missing when the body was ultimately released to the Ramirez family. Mm -hmm. So she was buried 10 weeks later at Olivewood Memorial Park in Riverside. Um, And as I said, after this incident, a year later, Dr. Gorchinsky, as well as other medical staff who were present that night, continued to experience frequent severe headaches, breathing problems, fatigue. But even years later, there was still no conclusive answer as to what happened. Um, In an article three years after the incident, Dr. Gorchinsky said she was still experiencing symptoms. She was a one-time avid surfer and dancer, but now if she were working a week's worth of shifts in the emergency room, she would be in bed for days with extreme pain in her legs. She ended up having eight different knee operations since the uh, night of the poisoning, um, poisoning slash outbreak slash whatever happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's still no answers. But the death of Gloria Ramirez and the incident of February 14th inspired not only this episode of Law & Order, but episodes of ER, of Diagnosis Murder, and appears to also have inspired an episode of The X-Files, where a patient who is pricked by a syringe emits toxic fumes in an ambulance, and the person's DNA ends up being from another planet. So it's, you know, adding fuel to this whole, like, alien theory But kind of like wrapping up the story, the Riverside County ended up settling with the Ramirez family uh, for settlements up to $800,000, for which, you know, they claim was this improper treatment of Gloria and for emotional distress caused to the family Mm -hmm. uh, for kind of putting out the theory that Gloria was the source of these incidents. Right. And like I said... There's not a ton out there about Gloria Ramirez, so but I'll just kind of like wrap up with um, she was known to her family as a spunky, spontaneous mother of two who knew how to have fun. Uh, they described her as a kind-hearted caregiver who was always cooking for other people and would also uh, make food for people in her community who were experiencing financial hardship. And at the time of her death, she was uh, taking courses to become a medical assistant. And that is the still unexplained outbreak of symptoms around the time of the death of Gloria Ramirez. Wow. Isn't that strange? Yeah, I definitely heard that. I did not hear all of those theories at all. 
Um, I had never heard of this up until I researched it. Oh, yeah. I, this is one of those cases that shows up on a lot of those unexplained uh, cases in history lists, like spont- the early spontaneous combustion case, this one. Oh, yeah. A few of those are like those medical mysteries, but... Yeah. I almost feel like now hearing all of the evidence and hearing all of the theories, it really does feel like it has to be something circumstantial and not having to do with her at all. I agree. I don't think it had anything to do with her. You know, like, it feels like it would be, if it ever was solved, I think it's kind of too late. Um, Yes, agreed. But I think if it was able to be solved with the state of the room and location at the time, I bet it would have been something really silly. Not to downplay it, but it would have been something... When I say silly, I mean something totally, oh, no one knew that was there. No one knew that exactly. was open. No one knew that was, right. like, unhinged or something, so. Right, like, one of those things, like, you know. Light the gas. Plate. Somebody put a bottle of whatever in this room where the, you know, sewer line was uncapped and just so happens enough fumes, like, wafted into the hallway. Like, that kind of thing, yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. Well, great job. I didn't I didn't know a lot Thanks. of that. Yeah, um, what do we how think would about, you yeah, what rate are, the episode? <laughs> <laughs> um, D plus, honestly, for watchability. I'm going to agree with you. I thought it was a pretty bad episode. Yeah, it wasn't great. I, they're, they're doing a lot of character development things. That's very obvious to me. But yes. maybe only very obvious. You know, maybe at the time it wasn't as obvious. But um, I don't know. It's just, no, it just didn't. Didn't do it. Didn't do it. And uh, yeah. What do you think about how it dealt with the incident? I thought, I mean, obviously they like went, took the direction in a whole nother story of like medical malpractice stuff. Mm. But um, I'm going to say, so I, I give it a, you gave it a D plus for watchability, yeah. right? I'm going to give it a D for like how it dealt with things too, because like I felt like they were really cavalier about this, you know, grade school teachers tragic death and then the weird gross stuff they did about like mansplaining feminism to Kincaid it was just I thought it was all really bad yeah <laughs> I I, it was a really bad episode totally, all around totally agree I give it a D also I feel like all of the things that happened in the real case with making her responsible like you said and like they do this a lot where they're like oh we're gonna throw in Fume lady, because that's a real thing that happened. Right. And we're going to throw in this because it's a real thing that happened. And that's great. But then they don't do enough to talk about it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like it just yeah. happens and it's like, okay. Like they don't Moving really on. have the conversations they need to have to like further anything. They're just like, look what happens. Yeah. Feel how you want. Hey, we're back though. We're back at least. We're back. Well, I know that your phone is either in your hands or within your reach, so please grab it right now and head over to whatever podcast uh, app you're using and uh, subscribe. And while you're there, please uh, write a little review, a little five-star review, because that helps other people find our show. That's right. And you're probably very, very popular and have tons of friends in your circle, so I'm sure they'd love to listen to our podcast and all of the great things you have to say about it, so tell them about it. Yeah. Uh, our social media is Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and our email is rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. We love getting emails, so please send us a note to say hi. And if you'd like to learn more about us and find information about our show, merch, and our Patreon, which is now available, you can check out our website, rippedheadlinespod.com. 
Yes, and a percentage of our Patreon proceeds get donated to the Equal Justice Initiative. So by supporting us, you are supporting positive change in the world. And if you want to support us another way, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash N and Matt. Thanks for listening to Ripped from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week, and until then, stay out of the headlines. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.